Pearson Ravitt's story begins with Dr. Stephanie Pearson, a passionate OBGYN at the height of her career. But when a shoulder injury struck during a precipitous delivery, her dreams were shattered, leaving her unable to practice medicine. Determined to make a difference, Dr. Pearson became an advocate for her peers, guiding them through the complex disability process. Alongside insurance expert Scott Ravitz, Dr. Pearson founded Pearson Ravitz, a company determined to approach insurance differently. Together, they set their mission to educate and empower physicians to protect their most valuable asset, their income, and the most important people in their life, their family. Today, Pearson Ravitz serves the medical community in all 50 states. At Pearson Ravitz, they understand the unique concerns of physicians. Physician-founded and physician-focused, Pearson Ravitz builds human connections before they create quotes. Life can change in an instant. It's hard to imagine that a sudden illness or injury could leave you and your family in a devastating financial situation. But with little planning and guidance, you can prepare for every possibility. Visit PearsonRavitz.com to schedule your consultation with a Pearson Ravitz advisor. You can become rich by just changing your mindset. Okay, okay, I know how that sounds. But it's true, it's true. I was skeptical, but I get it now. So now sit down and listen with both butt cheeks. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a show by me, Dr. Bradley Block, and this is a practical guide for practicing physicians where we interview experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Dr. Latifat Akintade, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Bradley, for having me here. Originally, I was going to start with a question about the Money Fit MD origin story, but before the show, we were talking about what you're doing right now. So just to give a brief introduction to the audience, Dr. Akintade is a, an accomplished gastroenterologist. She's also the host of the Muddy Fit MD podcast and Instagram page. And she wrote just wrote a book about money management called Done With Broke. And we're going to get to all of that. Right now, she's on sabbatical in Curacao. So she's there with her husband and her three kids. They're doing kind of like a hybrid type of a homeschooling. And to use your terminology, you are on sabbatical with both butt cheeks. So tell us about your sabbatical and tell us what you mean by both butt cheeks. Okay, this is funny. Oh, all right. Thanks for making me laugh. Well, I'm glad to be here too. So I am on sabbatical. You said that correctly. And we are currently in Curacao, but we're going to be traveling to about 15 countries over this year. And we are here because we want to be here. I guess that's a two butt chick thing. And I guess if you wanted to find a different terminology, you could use authentic. And my goal in life is to be able to just live my life with two butt chicks, which means that being in places that I want to be in and remembering and reminding myself to remember my power to choose where I'm at, whether to stay, whether to leave, and which is my approach to money, to be honest with you. I think physicians in general, if we are more empowered when it comes to our finances, we will live life with two butt cheeks. And that is exactly what we're going to need in order to take care of patients and improve healthcare. But I'm excited to be here hanging out with you. And I'm excited that I'm on the sabbatical that we decided we wanted to spend our life doing this year. So we're going to get into that, you know, the philosophy you have towards money, the approach that you have towards money, because I think that physicians in general, we get a bad rap, but I think there are a lot of us out there that are doing pretty well and learning from experts like yourself. So first, 
you know, you didn't start out with expertise and money. You became the expert that you needed. So tell us about the Money Fit MD origin story. Absolutely. So I am Dr. Latifa. I'm a GI doctor, like you mentioned. And like you said, I knew nothing about money until literally seven years ago. And I moved from Nigeria about 25 years ago, which is crazy. I'm like, it feels like yesterday, but it's been 25 years. And at that point, my siblings and I moved to, moved here and my parents spent most of their time in Nigeria. And we were, we lived with a family member in LA who were super kind to us and gave me my introduction to money, which is, there is this amazing thing called a credit card. It's amazing. You can use it whenever you want and you don't have to pay everything, right? Which is what they knew about money as well. So essentially that was all I knew. Thankfully, I wasn't really spending much. So I didn't really get into too much trouble when it came to credit cards. But I you know, went through undergrad. I went to UCLA, UCSF, and then Mount Sinai in New York for residency, and then back to California, UC Davis for fellowship, which meant that, you know, I acquired drug, dragged my debt throughout the country. That's what that literally meant. And you so decided to live in the most expensive places in the country, right? What can I say? <laughs> That's how we do things. I didn't even know those were the most expensive parts. I just wanted great training. And that's what I went for. And I know there are many different places you could, but those were the places that I ended up. And I'm so grateful for my path to journey. I'm grateful for all the trainings that I got and all the amazing humans that I've gotten to meet throughout this journey that remain friends to today. So I tell them that they're the best friends money can buy. There we have it. But I didn't know anything about money. And I had my first kid in residency, third year of residency, second kid in fellowship, and then my third kid as an attendant. And I remember with my second kid at that point, I just remember sitting down, looking at my kids and knowing that I wanted to be one. I wanted to be a great physician. I love what I do. I love being a GI doctor. I had chosen at that point to have a focus in Crohn's and colitis, so inflammatory bowel diseases. So I knew that to do it in the way that I wanted to do it, it was best in an academic setting or a large hospital system. But one thing that I also knew at that point, which I'm so grateful for, was that if I continued on my path and I was working for someone else, I was going to have to do what they wanted me to do. And as long as I don't have a choice in whether I stay or leave or feel like I cannot, I don't have a plan B, I was I knew that was going to most likely to burn out because I was not going to be able to say the things that I wanted to say or practice medicine completely the way that I wanted to practice it. So for me, so they would that have was, leverage over you if you wouldn't be able to leave when you want to leave and do what you want to do. They have leverage the moment that they don't have you in that position, like the golden handcuffs, then they've lost a lot of that. Leverage. Absolutely. That's an excellent point. Sorry, continue. Absolutely. No. And, you know, as you're saying that now, what I'm realizing is honestly, like regret is something that I don't like at all. And for me, it was my fear of regretting going into medicine, the fear of regret of the sacrifices that the people that sacrificed for me to be where I was. I didn't see my mother for five years, right? That was the fear of the hard, like the cost of the present and the future that I was going to have wasn't only mine. 
So the fear of regret for those people were the reason why I knew that it was my job to make sure I did everything to protect myself, to be well and only practice medicine because I want to, not because I have to. And that was what forced me to go learn about money because at that point I knew zero. I did not know who I owed, like my student loans. I just knew that I had an Auntie Sally that would write me letters all the time, Sally Mae, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know who you are. I just, I'll sign whatever. So you stop bothering me. So I didn't know what that was. I had nothing in a 401k. I didn't even know what a 401k was at that point. And I was afraid of what I was going to find. But my fear of regret and my fear of not having a choice and my fear of having to look at my kids and apologize because I'm like, oh, I don't have a choice. That was what made me like that became bigger than my fear of money or not knowing money. And that's what forced me to start learning money for myself. That's so interesting because most of us, when we're in our training, are thinking one day I'll be in an attending and I'm going to be making 10 times what I make now as a resident. I mean, depending on clearly, depending on your specialty, depending on what you're making in residency, but I'm not going to have to worry about money like I am as a resident where you're thinking like we're always going to have to work like the, the what gave you that foresight to even be thinking in that direction? To be honest with you, I don't want to I can't take full credit for that foresight. I mean, I experienced the same thing my fellows, ex, my co-fellows and co-resident experience, which was that physicians were burning out, right? I could see shoulder slumped on my attendants. I could see opportunities. And these are amazing, super smart. Making me for those that are watching on YouTube, now I'm adjusting my shoulders. To okay, sorry. <laughs> right. Ooh. Like there were times when we wish they would advocate for us, but they couldn't because there was just this, well, this is how it is. Or yeah. you guys are going to pass by and go leave here. And we're going to be the like that energy. I just knew that if I cannot advocate for people, if I cannot advocate for my patients, if I cannot say this is what I want my patient to get, not that was going to be, there was going to be a lack of congruence with who I was. And for me, that was worse than anything else. Okay. So now you've decided, right, I need to set myself up financially such that I will never be under the hospital's thumb. Like I want to practice in this high complexity setting. And the only way that I can do that is to work for a hospital but I'll be an employee. So I need to get my money act together. Where did you even begin with that? I went to Google. I was like, what is a budget? <laughs> oh, I hate budgeting. Yeah. What is a fall one? I literally try to memorize all those things. I read, you know, blogs, I read books, but it really wasn't really sticking. And what helped me was, again, the fear that I had of regret and the fear yeah. of looking at my kids and not having a choice. But also what helped me was realizing that, okay, there are definitely people that are not as smart necessarily as I am that are doing this. So there has uh, to be yes. a way for me to I want, get it. I want re-physician around that's listening to this to hear that again. What was that you said about being smart? There are definitely, if you're listening to this, there are definitely humans doing money that are not close to being smart as you are. Because we are the, and not saying other people are not smart, but physicians, we've gone through so much to get to where we are today. There is no question about how smart we are. So the only reason why I would not understand it is maybe I am not chewing it in the way that I'm not getting it in the way that it's been delivered. So I had to literally try to digest it and start making analogies and understanding it, not in money language, but in English for it to make sense to me. 
And then I also started realizing that, okay, if I hate budgeting, if I hate worksheets, if I hate calculators and complex math, how can I, it's impossible that I would not be able to figure out a way to do this. So I literally had to learn it for myself. And at no point was I thinking about anybody else because I thought there was a class in medical school that maybe I skipped on that one (laughs) night that my friends and I went to Chuck E. Cheese, (laughs) right? I must have missed this class. That's what I thought. But apparently I have asked everybody that class never happened. It never happened. And they're all just faking it or they were interested before or right. And it's the Pareto principle, right? The 80-20 rule. You really only have to understand like the most like 20% of it in order to get 80% of it correct. And you don't need to get this 100% right. You just need to be getting like 80% of it right. So you need to understand like a critical core 20%. It's that's it. So to your point, you've just got to find your way to wrapping your head around this information. My own dad's an accountant and he was talking to me about IRAs and Roth IRAs. Listen, you're a resident now, so you qualify for the Roth. When you're done, you're not going to qualify for you. And I remember him telling me this stuff and it all just like, I'm, I, was, I was not paying it. I was not listening. I mean, I was a resident, so I was exhausted, you know, but none of it, I retained none of it. Like you've got to find your own path in your own way to think about it and conceptualize it. And so that's what, you know, for me actually it was on my honeymoon when I started reading these <laughs> financial literacy books. Wow. So, you know, that's Good when I started you. to have to get my, my, my act together. I mean, not that I'm no money fit MD, you know, but I know, but I know a little. So tell me then how that your own personal education morphed into money fit MD. So I was learning for myself. And as most physicians, when you find something good, you want to share it with people, right? And so I would share with my colleagues at work in ways that now started to make more sense to them. So if anyone was having struggles with money or explaining, they would ask for Latifah to, oh, Latifah, can you explain this? Like, and it wasn't necessarily that I even understood everything. It was now because I had done some work in learning stuff. So now I had no fear and I had no judgment of needing to read it 10 times to understand it because I'm like, maybe I just need repetition because obviously there's nothing that I cannot understand. I just need repetition in practice. But so I was helping my colleagues. I was helping my friends. I was helping my family members because I'm like, yo, this stuff isn't even hard, right? And then, but I never at any point taught I was going to teach anybody because my entire goal is to be a GI physician. I love, loved what I do. It's a gift for me, a gift for my patients. And if all I did was GI to the very last, you know, old and gray, I would be really happy and I still love what I do, right? But at no point did I think that I was going to do this because just the same way I knew that I wasn't good with money when we started, I also knew that I wasn't good with talking in front of people, being an entrepreneur, video, podcast, none of that. I literally was on Facebook with a fake name. What was your fake name? <laughs> it was Lala Akins. <laughs> right? People didn't know my name for a very long time because I did not want to be out there, right? But it really was when the pandemic happened. And physicians were getting fired. Nurses were getting fired. People were worried about money. Even people that worked at my hospital were worried about money. And I had zero worry about money. And at that point, honestly, 
it felt like it was wrong for me to not help people with what I knew. Because if I did not worry about money, that meant that I could focus on things that were more important. I could focus on my children's mental health. I could focus on my parents being well, right? I could focus on our community. I could focus on my patients and things that were of value to me because the money stuff was taken care of. And it was at that moment that I was like, okay, Latifat, what are you doing? We need to, like, I literally was kicking and screaming because I did not want to. But just to clarify, what you don't mean is how to make more money so I can buy more stuff. What you do mean is if you're worried about paying your bills, if you're worried about how much you're spending this month, if you're worried about if you can afford to go on vacation or sabbatical, it's occupying mental bandwidth. But if you have it all squared away and it's all tucked and handled, then it's not occupying mental bandwidth anymore. And I actually struggle with this as well. My wife will tell you every so often I kind of like break down a little bit, go off the rails a little bit because I don't have it locked down. I'm worried about it. We're spending too much. I'm not making enough. Can we afford to do this? Can we buy this? Should we be buying? It's a problem. It's a problem that I don't have like you have where it's tucked and squared away. Is that correct? So there are two parts to that. And there are two different parts. And you explained one of the parts, right? There, what I will say is worry is a symptom that can be of two different things. Can be from actual fact of lack or can be from a thought or worry of potential lack, right? The thought and worry of potential lack may be in the presence of objectively still having. So there are people that may have multiple seven figures of net worth and may still be worried because what I know and what I found and what I teach people is it's not just about the numbers. It's also about how we think about the numbers, right? And part of this feeds into who we are, but fits into part of our journey too, like what we learned from growing up. Like, did our parents tell us that, you know what, if you don't have this, all this amount, you're going to be screwed or, you know, like money, maybe you saw your parents fighting about money growing up, or maybe there's just this, or maybe you grew up not having, and there's this fear of not having. So regardless of what you have, objectively, there's still that fear. In those cases, the number is not the problem. It's more of like the mindset about it, right? So again, there are two different areas. And the people that I've worked with, some don't have objectively, and some do have, but worry about not having. So the idea of getting talked away, as long as you're human, you will have worry, right? But then the key is having the tools to be able to now reset back to, okay, we're good, right? We're fine. We have this. And reminding yourself of that as often as you need to until your brain on the subconscious level gets the fact that we actually are good. Then it becomes less times of worrying. So, I mean, if you're from an upbringing where you didn't come from that much. Now, I, you know, we grew up comfortably. We didn't grow up wealthy, but we were certainly, and yet, you know, my parents grew up with, you know, each generation has done better than the one before, right? Like my parents had more than their parents who had more than their parents who fled like, you know, my family's like the movie Fiddler on the Roof, you know, and Fievel, an American tale, like flooding Easter, fleeing Eastern European at the turn of the century. And so each generation since then has done better than the one before. And But it seems like generation, generationally, we've kind of carried with us to the point where I'm still, I am generous with my family and myself, but still I have that in the back of my mind to the point where like when there's food in the fridge, I choose what I'm going to eat by just picking whatever's about to expire or 
sometimes, my wife can't tell me about this, already expired because they don't want to waste because that's wasting money. We're like waste, We want to try and strip that away. But if you have someone who's just, this is how they were brought up. You're telling me you're able to help people to kind of break that. Absolutely. Mindset? Absolutely. Absolutely. And anybody and everybody can keep in mind, right? What I tell people is if it's working for you, if it's working for your life, there's no point changing it, right? If it's working for you, you eat expired food. God bless you. You just don't get diarrhea and call yeah, me. Well, I'm going to have to come see you. Exactly. I'm not, you're not going to see me because I'm going to be. <laughs> Right. So that's the key. Like, and I want us to, and that's the thing, like, is it helpful to even work on it? Or it's just like, you know what? This is, it's not hurting me. It's not hurting our pocket. It's not hurting our wellness. It's not affecting our quality of life. Then it's okay. Like not everything needs to be fixed, right? If you fix yeah. that, you're going to have another issue. But if it's affecting your ability to enjoy life, if your significant other is finding fault or problems with that, if it's costing, then it's, and if you just don't like it, then it, you can't work on it. And what I tell people is a lot of times, right? What we think it's literally a sentence in our brain. And what happens is I imagine I was going to buffet, going to eat, right? There's a bunch of different options. If I go into a room with like a multicultural buffet, the one I'm going to pick there is the one that I'm probably more familiar with. Like, okay, that looks familiar. I'm going to pick that. That looks familiar. I'm going to pick that. And so the way that I think about it is that's how we are when it comes to our thoughts every day and including our financial thoughts, our money thoughts, right? We get thousands of thoughts every day, but we pick the ones that feel familiar. So the thought that you have of something expiring in the refrigerator is something that everybody can have a thought about, but you just pick the one that's familiar to you based on the story that feels familiar to you, right? So I Got could it. see the same refrigerator, see it's next by it and go, Phew, my mother raised me better than to eat like expired cheese and throw it in the trash. I still had a thought, but the story I have is what I was taught and what I've been conditioned with, what I what feels familiar to me. So if I want to change that, then I have to be intentional of recognizing the story that I carry and decide what I want to replace it with. And like anything else, it's going to take practice. But as you're practicing, it's important to be kind to yourself and not judge yourself. And just, of course, I'm going to think to eat it first, but then now I'm moving to a different pathway. And now I'm going to remind myself of the new pathway, just like riding a bike. And then it gets familiar and familiar and familiar over time. So what are the types of mindset shifts that you've seen or pathologic ways of thinking about money that you've seen that people have needed to change or wanted to change? I mean, to be honest with you, it's the whole gamut. There's, I feel like there's almost nothing I haven't seen as far as I'm aware, right? But when it comes to like the actual, I would call it the phenotype, right? Since we're physicians that you would see what you've seen executed, what you're seeing manifesting. It could be someone just saying that I don't have money or I worry about money or maybe they're like, my net worth is not growing, or I think that I'm living paycheck to paycheck, or I just want to grow wealth, period, right? And if someone is like, I want to grow wealth, but they're not doing it, then I wonder what what is separating them from where they want to go into. So for example, if I have a patient, a client that says, I want to have money, I want to be able to work 0.8 FTE and not have to worry about finances, then the way we have to do that is figure out how you want to diversify your source of income, right? But then in the journey to diversifying their source of income, they may be having fear of like investing, right? That's how the mindset stuff comes in, right? So it's like, I'm afraid of investing because I don't want to lose money because if I lose money, 
the world is going to end. Now let's deal with that sentence in your brain, right? When we deal with that sentence, then they're able to invest easier. So those are the ways. And honestly, we all have this. And I want to make sure that I'm not pathologizing what is physiologic. Like we all have this and there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with you or rather there's something wrong with all of us. How about that? Right. But the key is it costing an outcome that we don't like. Right. If I'm trying to raise money to pay off a debt, for example, maybe I have $20,000 in credit card debt and I want to pay it off. If I'm decreasing all of my spending, decreasing vacation going to in for a short period of time, if I'm making sure that I decide what I'm going to eat based on what is in my refrigerator, that is wisdom. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if that is being carried over to when things are fine and I'm not spending, I'm over saving which is a thing that can happen, then that may be causing issues in my life that I need to take care of. So again, mm-hmm. I don't want us to think there's something wrong with us because we have enough issues to deal with in the world anyway. But are you getting the result you want? If the answer is yes, then hallelujah, you're good. But if you're not, then the question is, what is going on? Where are you? Where are you trying to go? And how can we help you bridge, bridge the gap? Okay, okay. So I've heard money coaches talk about money is just a tool, right? And I don't quite understand what that means, right? Like I understand that money is not the ultimate goal, right? We're all not all like Scrooge McDuck swimming in a pool of our money and actually, you know, enjoying the feel and smell of money. No, we want to buy stuff. Yes, it's a tool. Tool buy stuff, right? So what exactly does that mean? Money is just a tool. What am I missing? So the way that I think about it is when it comes to money, people talk about the numbers, right? And people think it's all about the numbers, but the numbers is really only 20%. The remaining 80% is more, and I love your face. If you guys are listening yeah. on the podcast and you're not seeing Bradley's face, go find his face wherever you can find it. Because this is, I don't know what timestamp this is going to be, but that was a really funny personal it's expression. My- just so I can describe it, it is my I am skeptical face. The numbers are only 20%. Absolutely. Is, this is my skeptical face. Okay, so let's Absolutely. hear it. Let's hear it. Absolutely. The number, meaning the math, is 20% of it. That is why, honestly, if the math and the number was 100%, every physician will be great at money. The only reason it's not is because the number, and this is what I had to realize and learn, the number is 20%. The rest of it is the psychological part of money, is the mentality, the habits, right? The psychological part of money. And the reason why I'm explaining this is I want to explain why money is a tool, okay? Many times- Sorry, I'm just going to, I just want to push back on this for a second, because if the numbers are only 20%, the habits are a big part of it, but the habits are what lead to- like, you know, by not spending all your money, allow you to save and then invest and build wealth. But that's all the numbers. That's all the numbers. So like, okay, sorry, I'll let you continue. So the output is numbers, right? The math, right? But if you think about it, people go, but just don't spend. Just spend less, right? Just do the math. And you're like, okay, if it's all about math, You can go on Google and see the math, but people are not taking action. The reason why we actually are not taking action, it's the fear, the worry, 
those are the things that we don't necessarily get when it comes to traditional talking about money. That is why no matter how much your net worth is, no matter how much that number is, if we don't deal with the psychology part of things, you're never going to feel the way you think you're going to feel when you have the numbers. Got it. I see. So the math is none of it's going to work if the math doesn't work. But just because the math works doesn't mean everything else is going to work. You might still feel like you're living paycheck to paycheck even when you're not. You might not be building wealth because you're not, you know, moving the numbers appropriately, even though the numbers may be there. You're not putting them in the right place. So so the numbers are part of it, but it's also recognizing you're there when you're there, recognizing you're on your way there. And, you know, okay, maybe it's not 20%, maybe it's a little more, but okay, I see where you're going. <laughs> but you get my point, because if you yeah, think about it, the reason why people want to have money is I want to not ever have to worry about money. But if that was the case, the when you talk to people, the number they think they need to not worry will be changing. Yeah, you're if always going to move the goalpost. They're going to move that if they don't deal with the underlying issue. Yeah. But the reason why I say that money is a tool is because one of the worst things we could do is define ourselves by our money, right? Whether you don't have a lot of it or you have a lot of it, right? There is the external part of things and there's the internal part of things. In my opinion, the way that I talk about money and teach about money is building from the inside out. Where you develop a relationship with yourself right? Relationship with yourself, relationship with money, relationship with others. Because the number one reason why people don't achieve what they want to achieve in terms of the numbers and what they think they're going to feel like when they get the numbers is because the problem with the relationship with themselves and relationship with others, right? And money is not meant to fix your relationship. Money is not meant to be had so that you can like yourself better, right? You have to work on those things independently. But when you are comfortable sitting with yourself in a room by yourself. When you have a relationship enough with people that you have good boundaries, you're not looking for them to give you a stamp of approval. People pleasing and call you like a good team member when you're like burnt out to char, right? When you work on that stuff, you're fine regardless of money. Then money becomes something that you use. It's something that augments your life. It's something that you're like, you know what? I like my kid, my kid likes me, and we just choose to have a vacation. I'm not going on a vacation so they can like me. So that's what money is a tool is. Many times as a world, we spend money so that we can feel a certain way. And the thing is, if we can feel the way that we want to feel without money, then money, we can allow it to grow. And the beauty of that is if you think about it in that way, you don't even really have to budget. Because you're not overspending, trying, yes, you don't not overspending. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, because I mean, really, like, everybody if you're should not budgeting, watch the video. <laughs> if you're not budgeting, traditional budgeting, traditional budgeting, where you like limit yourself, okay, I've spent all my money for the month on food. I can't spend any more money for the month on food. No, but like keeping track of your spending, things can get out of control, right? It actually happened to me where we were like, like we were doing great. We were keeping track of how much we were spending, how much we were get, taking in, and we were like socking away a ton of money. You know, the kids got older, they got into more activities. We started like loosening up on what we were spending. Yeah, sure, I'll buy this from. And suddenly, like, blew up the budget. And then we need we needed to we needed to rein things in. So you don't have to, I guess, traditionally budget, but you do. You can't just you can't just like spend and hope for the best. No, of course not. Yeah. I mean, listen, well, if I was saying, spending, of course not to a guy that did that. So if I was saying, you know, 
hope for the best, right? Hope yeah, doesn't yeah. feed my kids. Let's just say that. Yeah. And hope ain't going to pay the bills at night, right? Hope but is not a strategy. Key, yes. It's not a strategy. But the key is, though, to address what you're saying is well noted. Definitely the traditional sense, right? And the reason why is, again, I try to be careful about how we approach money because what happens is as physicians, we are also really type A, right? Yes, you're, we're like, we want things done precisely. And when it's not precise, we're like, it is getting messed up, right? So the less critical we are, right? The less critical we are, the less judgment we have about getting ourselves back on track. And what ends up happening is the more we actually judge ourselves, the more we overspend. Because when you're judging yourself, you feel like crap. And suddenly you're like, I want to go shopping anyway, just so I can feel better. I already messed it up anyway. And then you're grumpy and your spouse hates you. And now you have a fight and you're like, well, I better buy him or her something super amazing to show like, guess what? We're going on a vacation next month. When maybe if you were less judgmental about your body, Budget, you would not have like your load and then your load again to fix the your load you did the first time. Right. So yes, we keep track of things. But what I like to tell people is in traditional budgeting worked for some people, but mm-hmm. it did not work for me. I just I just always felt like I was doing something wrong. And that's what I didn't like. So what are the ways in which you keep track of things? Because what I've started to do, and right, I don't have your education. I, this was just me figuring it out. Like, we'll try this and see what works. Each month at the end of the month, this is how much we earned and this is how much we spent. And if there's something that's off, then we can like assess and decide if we need to change something. And that's, we've just been doing that for a couple of months. That's our system. But what is a system? What are systems that you've seen and systems that you've recommended? I am curious, where does your investment fall in your pathway? Do you invest and then spend or do you spend and then invest? No, no, the investment is not included in the equation. So that money is, I need to take it out before it even hits my paycheck. That just doesn't, it's not, it's not included in the calculus. It already happens. So yes, that's where the investment is. So if it already happened and you have that money left, then how is the budgeting not working what are you budgeting for no no no. we just started doing this like when we got needed it, to rein it. things in got it got we're it, like got it, got like this will be it. the system got for it. now where each month we just look at absolutely you know, absolutely plus and minus absolutely and, and where are we and if we're doing well then we can loosen up our spending a little bit absolutely if we're not doing absolutely. well then we'll tighten things up okay a little bit. so you it's working for you right and that's the key you have to figure out what works based on what seasons you're in right when i was starting out we had to be make sure that we knew where the money was going, right? Because I had student loans that I wanted to pay off and those sort of things. So for me, it was like making sure, and we had kids in childcare, that was not cheap either, right? I had multiple six figures that I was owing. So what I like, and there are different systems. Some people like YNAB, you need a budget. It's a monitoring system, like a budgeting system. I don't love it. I did it for a couple of months. I'm like, this is too weird. But some people love it. They say it's a perfect system. What is Mint, YNAB, you need a budget, Y-N-A-B. Yes. I like Mint. Mint is simple to use. It's free. And it within a couple of weeks, you will get a hang of it. And it's just a question of knowing where your money is going. That's the important thing. And I like to ask people, you know, knowing what assets are and knowing what liabilities are is important. If all your money is going into buying or paying for things that does not increase your ownership, 
does not increase your net worth and does not put money into your pocket or improve your wellness, that's a liability, right? So if you're seeing that you're making money, but it's not growing, it may be because you're spending towards liabilities. And now the question is, how do you shift that over to buying assets where you're investing in the stock market or outside of the stock market, whatever you want to do, that makes sense based on your goals, right? That's how I think about it. And then the other way that I think about it too is, if I want to spend something, asking myself a simple question, like in six months from now, Will I be glad that I spent this money in this way or will I wish I had the money back? Right. And the answer to that question is going to be very, very dependent. Forever on the hips. That's what you just said. The money equivalent of a minute. What is it? A second on the lips or a minute on the lips forever on the hips. So, oh, no, I haven't heard I've, that one. I've never heard, heard that, that before. No. Oh, my wife just told it to me as I grabbed a handful of, uh, of chocolate chips. <laughs> But that's, you know, will I regret, will I regret having spent money on this six months from now? You know what? I think of the same thing when I sign up for like conferences, like, uh, will I be happy? You know, if I was to do this tomorrow, will I be happy that I signed up for it? Or I'm like, you know, six months from now, Brad is going to take, he'll handle it. He'll enjoy the conference. Yeah. So exactly. So I like, I like, that's a good way to, to, to think about it. Am I going to regret this purchase later? In six months. And the other question I like to ask myself is I like to think about my 80 year old self right? I ask myself what my 80-year-old self would want me to do right now. And she's the wisest person that I know because she has my back, right? She has my back right now. She has to deal with the consequences in future. So if I ask her, my 80-year-old self, should I take a sabbatical? She's If I had no money, she would say, girl, what you doing? <laughs> Don't, right? But if she knows that, okay, go tour the world while our hips works, right? Go create memories with the kids. Take care of yourself. You've taken care of us. We'll be fine, right? Those are simple things that don't necessarily have to do with math, but can yeah. help you make the right decisions because there are some times when spending is what you do, right? And there's some times where spending is not. But what I like to take out of money is the judgmental part of it. Like, have you made your budget yet? I've, you know, and that just causes more strain, to be honest with you, for a lot of people, not everybody. And if the traditional system is working, then please go with it. The bottom line is there's no one size fits all and it's okay and possible to do money your way in a way that works for you. That doesn't feel like a grind to your soul. You had said, you know, you got to see if you're spending your money on assets or liabilities. Now, you know, most of the time we're just buying stuff right? So there are liabilities. Yes, you have assets, you've got your house, and then you've got your investments. But like, what other assets that, you know, like, it sounds like, well, you're either investing or it's a liability, right? It's, it, 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 or, or are you buying assets that you're like, enjoying that are appreciating in value somehow? You know, if you think about Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is a classic book that a lot of people talk about, the way that assets are defined is things that increase your net worth or puts money in your pocket and liabilities do the opposite. And it's important to avoid extremism in any way. The goal is not to buy assets only and no liabilities. My primary home is a liability that I love. I do. However, we, we own you know, assets as well. And I also don't want you to have all liabilities and have no assets. It's finding what works based on what season of life you're in. But Rich Dad, Poor Dad defines it that way. For physicians, I change it a little bit. 
And the reason why I changed it a little bit is because in our culture or burnout that we have right now in mental health and wellness, it's important for us to understand the importance of taking care of ourselves, our bodies, right? Our bodies are important. It has to last us for a long time. Our brain is important. So you paying for a psychiatrist, a therapist, a coach, or any combination of that, in my opinion, is an asset because it makes you be well. So I include wellness as part of assets. So assets- We'll just say that again, a coach- Hiring a coach. <laughs> yes, a coach, a therapist, a psychiatrist, right? Those are, I mean, those are things that are important. But if you are going to go based on the traditional system, they would not necessarily meet the liability, excuse me, the asset category. Right. But it's an investment in yourself. I see, I see you, what you're saying there. That's an amazing point. And that's where 80-year-old you would be like, oh, man, I'm so glad you invested in that, in that webinar, in that course, in that thing that helped you be to be a better version of yourself. Absolutely. Healthier version of us so you can enjoy life and have less traumatic relationships, right? And you take no crap because my 80-year-old self, she's going to have a lot of sass. Like literally, (laughs) she would chase me around with a cane and a walker if I mess this up for her. So I better make sure I take care of us right now and create memories for us. Well, tell me about the book. So the book is, I'm super excited about this book, number one, because I wrote it. I'm a little biased. But on a more serious note, though, I'm really grateful that I wrote this book for some personal reasons and also for some non-personal, but I'll share the personal ones because it may some of the audience may actually benefit from learning that. I think a lot of times we have things that we've told ourselves we can or cannot do. And we have things that we don't believe about ourselves or believe about ourselves in a negative way. For me, I always said I was bad with writing. I said I was bad with writing. I have so many memories of sitting down in the bathroom in English class, you know, like literally crying because I'm like one more paper I have to do and like suck. I still got an A in the class, but I just have a lot of like memories of that trauma. And so I just never thought I was a good writer. And I've worked on this with coaching and I believed that I was maybe decent. But then I decided that there was just this idea of a book, which was to talk about money in a way that was kinder, in a way that was more gentle, in a way that focuses on the money stuff, but also about our relationship with money and what I believe are timeless principles that we can use for wealth building, regardless of whether it's crypto sexy today or something else sexy tomorrow, right? Me writing that book, I literally, I went to, I got a signed up with a publisher, like a, it's like a combo, like a self-publishing and assisted. I went to a workshop. I worked with an editor. I could have had someone write the book, but for me, Anytime I'm doing anything, there are two goals. There's a goal that I want to create out in the world, but there's a goal of also helping myself be better. And for me, just proving for myself once and for all that I can write was something that I wanted. And so now I can literally do even harder things because I did that, right? So I'm really proud of that. But from a content perspective, the goal is for this book to empower us to think a little bit outside of the numbers only and just learn those principles that I can talk about and see how when you learn those principles and now overlay the numbers, it just makes a lot more sense. So I'll give you an example of what I talk about. I talk about the importance of our money story and our money journey, what we learn from what we're younger, like understanding why we are who we are today not in a way that makes us think we have to hold on and never change, but in a way that brings more understanding, like, okay, I get it, right? So that when I'm defaulting back to those pathways, I'm not punching myself in the head, but I'm approaching it in a kinder way, right? 
there are other things that I talk about in there. For example, I see people do things like hyper saving, actually, where people think if I save enough, I will have money. And what I tell people is like saving is not the destination. Investing is the destination. Like I have people that have multiple six figures in an account and don't have ownership in things, right? That's not helpful for you, right? How can we help you invest? How can you learn to invest so that compounding can be a factor so you're not having to grind forever in order to earn money? So those are some of the principles. We talk about financial advisors, like are they made by the devil? I don't believe so, right? But I do think that a lot of times as physicians, we make the mistake of deferring our power to someone else and trusting someone else without remembering that it is our job to be the CEO of our finances. And whether you choose to have an advisor or an accountant, a tax strategist, those are all part of the team that you are the CEO of. So the point of this book is to put us back in the driver's seat of our finances and not thinking we have to do it ourselves, but we know that we cannot give away the power that exists from being the CEO of our money. I get the title now. I get the title. So done with broke, right? And it's not just that you're done with being broke, but you're done with that broke mindset where you're living as if you were, even though you are no longer. Can I give you a hug? Because you get it. (laughs) There's a reason why it's not called done being broke, because you don't have to be broke or ever be broke. I just think it's, it's if we as physicians remove the terminology broke, as an option forever, imagine what that would do to how we practice medicine. We would not be living in fear of consequences, right? We would be able to practice with authenticity the way we vowed to when we took our oath, the way we promised to when we wrote our personal statement, right? At no point did we say, I want to go into medicine to be an asshole or anything like that. We went in there to do great things, right? And then we get abused through a system. into medicine to examine them. Yeah, with two butt cheeks. Big butt cheeks. <laughs> so yes, thank you for understanding me. It's done with broke because with broke. you know it's just something that I don't worry about anymore because I have the tools, the mindset, and I know that if I have that, then I'm able to take actions and grow. And I'm always going to have options. Always. You will always be okay. You will always be okay. Okay. So where can people find you online, and where can people find the book? They can find me here on your podcast because they're listening <laughs> right now. I love it. But they can find me on my podcast, which is the Money Fit MD podcast. Um, I talk about all things money and mindset, but you can also find me on my website, which is Money Fit MD, where you will be able to get a link to the book. You can find it on Amazon as well, Done with Brooke by Latifah Akintade. And my goal really here is to help physicians be well. I don't believe it's money or our life. I believe we can have both. And if there's any way I can be of service in that, please feel free to reach out. I'm here to empower all physicians. Amazing. Dr. Latifat Akintare, thank you so much for your time and enjoy your sabbatical. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure hanging out with you. You've made me laugh a lot tonight. So for the audience, if you're listening to this episode and you've never left a review on this platform, please do. Podcasters work really, really hard. We're recording this at night. Bradley is hiding from his kids and his wife. The least you can do is leave him a freaking five-star review and tell him thank you for leaving there to come hang out with you. (laughs) And if you do, I will read it online for everyone to hear. So thank you. And thank you for plugging me. And thank you for the ask. 
And thank you for all the work that you do to help our professions and our colleagues. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast player. I'm also available for medical legal consulting and keynote speaking if you're interested, or to just give us some feedback on the show, email me at brad at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com. I'll see you next week. The ideas expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers.